This is Africa Digest. Good evening and welcome to Africa Digest. You're listening to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Broadcasting from Johannesburg, South Africa. We are on frequency 9625 kHz on the 31-meter band to Southern Africa. I am Spomelele Zondi. Driving the show with Tabi Solihoko and Tamek Uza. Your top stories in Africa Digest this hour. Chaos in Zimbabwean courts as an election challenge goes ahead, despite withdrawal of the MDC. South African athlete formally charged with murder. In economics, production at Toyota South Africa grinds to a halt as a nationwide strike gets underway. And in sports, headquarters of Somali National Olympic Committee under construction. But first, the news with Tabiso. is rising. At least 36 Islamist prisoners have died in that country on Saturday during an apparent attempt to, to escape uh, during The body count in Egypt is rising. At least 36 Islamist prisoners have died in that country on Saturday during an apparent attempt to, to escape during their transfer to a prison outside Cairo. The Interior Ministry gave conflicting accounts of the deaths, initially saying the men died from gunfire during an attack by unidentified gunmen. Egypt's upheaval is a course in global jitters, but no consensus on how to respond has emerged in the West or the Arab world. Senior researcher at the Afro-Middle East Center in South Africa says although the United States and the European Union have expressed great concern at events unfolding in Egypt, it is unlikely they will cut aid to that country's government. He's the European Afro-Middle East Center, Ibrahim Dean. The United States, as we all expect and we all predicted, would not really cut out aid to the Egyptian military. And, you know, it, Egypt is being of geopolitical strategic importance to it. And it sees, you know, the aid is the only uh, means of uh, influencing the Egyptian military, specifically with regards to, you know, its policy toward Israel. So, uh, I mean, if we're hoping for U.S. aid to be cut, unfortunately, we're clutching at straws. Meanwhile, former Egyptian President Hosni Mubarak's lawyers say he will be released from jail soon after a prosecutor cleared him in a corruption case. Mubarak was arrested after he was ousted. In scenes that mesmerized Arabs, the former leader appeared in a courtroom cage during his trial on charges that ranged from corruption to complicity in the murder of protesters. More than a year on, the only legal grounds for Mubarak's continued detention rest on another corruption case, which his lawyer, Farid al-Dib, said will be settled swiftly. A legal expert in South Africa say prosecutors in Oscar Pistorius's murder case have received copies of the police investigation docket, which contains a sworn statements of every witness they intend to call. The athlete's trial for the murder of his girlfriend, River Stienkamp, will be held in the North Gauteng High Court in March next year. 
Prosecutors say they will call 107 witnesses in the case. Professor Stephen Tucson is from the Virtus University Law Clinic. I will go through these with a fine tooth comb to see exactly what these witnesses can say. There will be forensic reports in this docket. There will be ballistics, bullets, guns, blood spatter, angles. The key to this case is the forensic evidence because we only have one eyewitness version and that's the accused himself and he's given an aversion that says, I thought I was under threat, under attack by an intruder and I shot in self-defense. And so the state case is based entirely on the forensic evidence. A Botswana national accused of killing his grandmother by cutting her throat and stabbing her several times has been acquitted by a high court in South Africa's northwest province. Tsepora Mohale of Homuka Sitwa in Botswana was arrested by Mutswedi police in Lehuruzi after crossing the Estilpand Hek border post into South Africa. He allegedly committed the crime at a village last October. The body of Emily Ramohale was found lying in a pool of blood next to a shack. The High Court ruled there is not sufficient evidence to link the accused to the murder of Emily Ramohale. Drive-through brothels are set to open in Zurich, Switzerland sometime this week. Reports say the so-called sex boxes cost city bosses over 22 million rand to build a workplace for a maximum of 40 prostitutes at a time. The wooden shacks were approved by local residents who were tired of women looking for clients on street corners. Prostitution is legal in Switzerland and sex workers do pay tax. Channel Africa News. It was a circus in the Zimbabwean courts today when lawyers representing both Robert Mugabe and Morgan Changarai were asked to attend a hearing, even though that matter was withdrawn. Lawyer for President Mugabe said there was nothing wrong with the move, although MDC spokesperson Douglas Monzora hinted that the courts were desperate to legitimize Mugabe's victory. Simon Muchemo reports. There was drama in Harare Monday as the Constitutional Court proceeded to hear the matter even though Morgan Changrai withdrew the poor result challenge to President Mugabe's victory. Mugabe ZANU-PF was quoted in the state-run media complaining that the withdrawal was a nullity. The Sunday Mail reported that Chief Justice Chijuao Siku was going to recuse himself as he was present when Mugabe said his party was not surrendering the victory a week ago. However, on Monday, Chief Justice Chijosiku was still at the helm of the Constitutional Court. Desperate to legitimize Mugabe's victory ahead of Thursday's inauguration, lawyers from both ZANU-PF and MDC were called to attend the court hearing. Terence Hussein, lawyer for Robert Mugabe, said the Monday hearing was procedural. The matter should be heard uh, fully so that all the submissions and so forth could be ventilated. So it was a full hearing. It was not based purely on uh, the papers that were filed. So all parties made their submissions and the court has resolved that it will issue a judgment tomorrow at 2 p.m. So the judgment will be a determination on the facts, uh, a final determination of that petition. It will make a declaration, so to speak, either whether or not President Mugabe was duly elected or whether President Mugabe was the winner of this election. So that's the sort of judgment that is going to come out tomorrow. 
Douglas Monzora, MDC spokesperson, said lawyers representing Morgan Changrai were in court Monday out of courtesy. Um, we see that the Constitutional Court wanted to insist on a hearing and we uh, insisted that a hearing was impossible in the absence of the material that we have been denied up to now. We have been denied uh, key material to be used in this, in, this, in this case. So we came to court out of courtesy and out of respect of the, of the institution, uh, not because we were enthusiastic with coming to court. It's an unfair, it's an unfair, it was going to be an unfair hearing anyway, and uh, we, um, we are happy that it is over. Monzora insists the ruling tomorrow is likely going to be prejudicial as his party is yet to be availed material requested in an election petition last week. Well, they said they are going to make their, their, their determination. Uh, they can make their determination the way they want, but in the absence of material, which the Constitutional Court must know that it is required uh, to prosecute a case successfully, then uh, uh, the, the prosecution is impossible. And the Constitutional Court did, does, doesn't appear to be looking at that. But anyway, our president uh, wrote a detailed affidavit where he gave the reasons for his uh, decision. MDC says it is surprised the cause are forcing them to attend cause when they have since withdrawn their petition. According to Monzora, the Chief Justice is desperate to legitimize the contested polls. Well, we, the Chief Justice who was uh, heading the court uh, did not explain the reasons why we are being forced to prosecute a case uh, which is akin to being forced to play a football match with one leg tied. Um, the referee is insisting that we should play that match. We are saying that uh, we do not have key material to be to use to prosecute this case. And we thought that the Constitutional Court will come to our rescue and order that we get this material. But uh, nobody is interested in uh, giving us the material that we want. On the Sadak summit in Lilongwe, Malawi over the weekend, Monzora said it was not surprising that the bloc remained silent on the credibility of the July 31 polls. Well, it was, uh, it was, it was to be ex expected anyway. Uh, we also noticed that the Sadak summit has, has postponed uh, its uh, decision on whether this election was, was fair which is our, our, our point. Our point is that the election was not fair. And that SADC continues not to talk about that. Uh, it means that they are, uh, they, are getting, they are finding it difficult. Uh, we maintain and we will, we will maintain our pressure on SADC, we will maintain our pressure on this government that this election was a stolen election. It was a monument of fraud. Meanwhile, Robert Mugabe will be sworn as leader of Zimbabwe for the seventh time on Thursday ahead of the United Nations World Tourism Organization Summit. The Congress is running from the 24th of this month. Reporting for Channel Africa in Harare, Zimbabwe, this is Simon Muchemwa. The border council is running across Egypt. At least 36 Islamist prisoners have died in that country on Saturday during an apparent attempt to escape during their transfer to a prison outside Cairo. The interior ministry gave conflicting accounts of deaths, initially saying the men died from gunfire during an attack by unidentified gunmen. Egypt's upheaval is causing global jitters, but no consensus on how to respond has emerged in the West or the Arab world. 
European Union diplomats were due to meet in Brussels to review how best to leverage some 6.7 billion United States dollars of promised grants and loans looking to apply pressure on Cairo's army blocked interim government. EU foreign ministers will hold an emergency meeting in Brussels on Wednesday to discuss the situation in Egypt. Ibrahim Dean, senior researcher at the Afro-Middle East Center in South Africa, says although the United States and the European Union have expressed great concern at events unfolding in Egypt, it is unlikely they will cut aid to that government. One of the two Norwegian soldiers jailed in the Democratic Republic of Congo has died in a military prison of the capital city, Kinshasa. Sergeant Jostalavo Molan was found dead in a cell. He was sharing with Lieutenant Joshua Daniel French, another Norwegian who also has a British citizenship. The reason of the death remains unclear, but investigations have been opened. Jean-Noel Bamwenze reports from Kinshasa. Justin Lavamolan has died in his cell of the Ndola military jail here in Kinshasa. Sergeant Molan was sharing the same cell with Lieutenant Joshua Daniel French, who's another Norwegian with a British citizenship as well. Both of them have been jailed at the Ndola military prison since November 2011, coming from the Kisangani jail in the province oriental. Molan and French were jailed in Kisangani since 2009 after receiving a death penalty for spying and murder of their driver, Mr. Abedi Kasongo, a Congolese citizen they hired since they entered in the province oriental. At the opening of the case at the Kisangani military court in 2009, the two soldiers were identified as staff of the Norwegian Royal Protection Squad. They told the court they came here in the Democratic Republic Republic of Congo through Uganda aiming to start a security company in that part of this country. After being found guilty by the Kisangani military court, they made an appeal at the military high court that confirmed the death penalty for murder and spying. The government of Norway tried its best to get the two inmates to serve their penalty in jail in their country, but they didn't succeed from the government of the Democratic Republic of Congo. The family of the assassinated driver, Abedi Kasongo, demanded the Norwegian government to pay an amount of $60 million, but the Norwegian government didn't agree the two Norwegian citizens have been in jail here since about four years now until Sergeant. Molan has been found dead. The National Army has appointed an investigator from the military court that will give more light on the circumstances of the death of Sergeant Molan. Norway doesn't have an embassy here in the Democratic Republic of Congo. Diplomats who followed the case in Kisangani were coming from the embassy of Norway in Angola. Jean-Noël Bamwese, Channel Africa, Kinshasa. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's only official international public radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese and Chinyanja. Informing the world about Africa, Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. A scientist from the South African University of the Witwatersrand has joined the National Geographic Society's community of explorers. Paleanthrop- 
Lopo, paleoanthropologist, Lieberger, research professor in human evolution and the public understanding of science has been named the National Geographic Explorer in residence. Berger's explorations into human origins in Africa over more than two decades have resulted in many significant discoveries. He currently directs one of the largest paleontological projects in history, leading more than 100 scientists who are studying fossils from a recently discovered site outside Johannesburg called Malapa. Komoto Mopulane reports. Explorers in residence are some of the world's foremost explorers and scientists and present a broad range of science and exploration. They develop programs in their respective areas of study, carrying out fieldwork supported by the National Geographic Society. As an explorer in residence, Berger will continue his work at Malapa, where he and his team have unearthed the most complete early hominin fossil discovered belonging to a new species of early human ancestor, Australopithecus sediba. Berger is an award-winning researcher, explorer, author and speaker. He is the recipient of a National Geographic Society's first prize of research and exploration awarded in 1997 and the Academy of Achievements Golden Plate Award, among other achievements. More from his colleague, Bruce Rubich, director of the Center of Excellence for Paleosciences at the South African University of Witwatersrand. Lee has been at Wits for quite a long time now, sort of in excess of 20 years, and he's a remarkably enthusiastic person, and he's able to exude that enthusiasm and to enthuse other people as well. So he's a wonderful asset to use Wits University, and not only that, he's also good at what he does. He's very good at doing research on the fossils, getting the best people to work with him, and this is perhaps his greatest strength, his ability to go out into the field and find fossils and to find new localities that have delivered fossils. Professor Rubich says this is a great achievement for Bega and that the University of Wittwatelsrand is thrilled about this appointment. This is a wonderful achievement for him. You know, to be a National Geographic Explorer in residence, there are very few of them in the world. And to have one from my institute here at WITS, from the Evolutionary Studies Institute, is a great uh, accolade to us and is a great achievement for, for Lee. And I really celebrate that. I'm, I'm thrilled for him that he's, an, uh, that he's got this appointment. And I'm sure it will lead him to new heights as well because it will enable him to go out and find more fossil sites and to explore the ones that he's currently doing. Berger is the author of more than 200 scholarly and popular papers, including more than 80 referred publications and several academic and popular books of paleontology, natural history and exploration. He has also helped fund the Paleoanthropological Scientific Trust, which today is the largest non-profit organization in Africa, supporting research into human origins. For Channel Africa, I'm Khamozama Pulani in Johannesburg. The body count is rising across Egypt. At least 36 Islamist prisoners have died in that country on Saturday during an apparent attempt to escape during their transfer to a prison outside Cairo. The interior ministry gave conflicting accounts of the deaths, initially saying the men died from gunfire during, the, during an attack by unidentified gunmen. Egypt's upheaval is causing global jitters, but no consensus on how to respond has emerged in the West or the Arab world. European Union diplomats were due to meet in to review how best to leverage some 6.7 billion United States dollars of promised grants and loans, looking to apply pressure on Cairo's army-backed interim government. 
EU foreign ministers will hold an emergency meeting in Brussels on Wednesday to discuss the situation in Egypt. Ibrahim Dean, senior researcher at the Afro-Middle East Center in South Africa, says although the United States and the European Union have expressed great concern at events unfolding in Egypt, it is unlikely they will cut aid to that government. The United States, as we all expect and we all predicted, would not really cut out aid to the Egyptian military. And, you know, it, Egypt is being of geopolitical strategic importance to it. And it sees, you know, the aid is the only uh, means of uh, influencing the Egyptian military, specifically with regards to, you know, its policy toward Israel. So, uh, I mean, if we're hoping for U.S. aid to be cut, uh, unfortunately, we're clutching at straws. Regarding the European Union, the EU specifically, because um, they issued a statement saying that they will reconvene and review their relationships with the, you know, with the Egyptian military or the military-backed regime. The, the problem with the EU is for a major decision to be taken in the EU, all the members, you know, have to be in favour of the decision. And already we're seeing the British just issue a statement saying that they're not supporting anyone or any side in the crisis, which means they will remain neutral, which would mean that the decision would not be able to pass. So we then need to look at, you know, individual member states of the EU and whether they would, uh, you know, decide to, uh, to, to halt the aid they provide to the Egypt. So we've seen Denmark already um, suspend its $5 million aid package to the Egyptians. However, the EU's aid and the US aid, yes, it does make up much, but it's more the, the question of whether pressure could be put on the Saudi Arabian regime and the United Arab Emirates regime to stop, you know, its support for the military. Now, you know, the violence against the protesters since the deposing of President Mohamed Morsi has sparked really harsh international condemnation, but indications are that it is set to continue. Now, the way that you've put the situation about it being unlikely that the U.S. will cut off its military aid and that individual countries might you know, not want to cut off ties with this regime in Egypt, does this mean then that the Egyptian authorities will continue to ignore the West and and hence, the violence will continue. Unfortunately, it's seeming that way that it would be the case. You know, we first, we just look at the evolution of, you know, the, the military response. So firstly, they, you know, they always stress the importance of, uh, you know, uh, peacefully solving the crisis, calling for inclusiveness, you know, saying that the Brotherhood would have a chance, you know, to, to participate in the political economy or in the politics of uh, Egypt. And then we then see, you know, the regime then, you know, knowing that the U.S. is not going to cut its aid, knowing that, you know, the Saudis and the United Arab Emirates support it, then issue statements saying that, you know, the protest a threat to security and that it's, you know, they're going to crowd the protests and, and they're going to, you know, disperse, you know, the, the encampments. Then we've seen the, just last week, you know, the ministry issuing a statement saying that, that live ammo would be used against protesters, you know, just basically as a threat to protesters. And, and you know, as we saw on Friday and Saturday, live ammo was used. And now we've seen the military regime issue a statement saying that it's not going to no longer act with restraint regarding protesters. So we've seen that the violence will actually escalate more than you know, be curbed or quelled or anything. And also, I think what is of very grave concern is the talk that is being bended about amongst Egyptian authorities about banning the Muslim Brotherhood. That's very important. However, you know, we do need to know that the Muslim Brotherhood has run underground 
you know, between 1954 and, you know, 2011-2012, uh, it only registered itself as a non-governmental organization a few uh, months ago. So uh, even though the unbanning or the banning of the Brotherhood may result in Brotherhood members being, you know, arrested and uh, tortured and assassinated, the group will continue operating. It has a, a large base and has previously successfully operated uh, during periods of the party being banned. Now, last week, the army moved against two encampments of President Mohamed Morsi's supporters in Cairo that was to try and break their sit-ins. But this only unleashed a wave of violence. And it seems these moves to quash resistance, you know, by the Muslim Brotherhood has only had limited success, if any at all. Is there no other way to try to solve this impasse? You know, we heard the reports last week that came in from the EU and the US saying that, you know, a political solution had been found. You know, the, the Muslim Brotherhood, contrary to how most media are putting it, the Muslim Brotherhood had accepted the solution, you know, which would start with, you know, the release of political prisoners and end up in, uh, you know, new elections and the replacement of uh, Mohammed Morsi. Yet it was the military who, you know, the Egyptian military who refused the solution and the Egyptian military who undermined you know, finding a solution by undertaking the activities that they done last week, by, uh, you know, uh, violently dispersing the two encampments. And this means that, unfortunately, even if there is a solution, it does not look like the military is willing or wanting to find a solution to the conflict. And General Abdel Fattah al-Sisi has emerged as the power behind the interim government. Doesn't this indicate that a coup did indeed take place with the deposition of Morsi and that Egypt is back to military rule, as in Hosni Mubarak's era? I do think, I mean, I think we now, you know, we're over the stage of, you know, understanding or conceptualizing or predicting or whether this was a coup or a revolution, because we now know it was a definite, most definitely a coup. We see just last week emergency law has been passed, you know, and that was used by the Mubarak regime. And in fact, current Egypt is even worse than, you know, what occurred during the Mubarak regime. That is Ibrahim Dean, senior researcher at the Afro-Middle East Center in South Africa, speaking to Jose Khotengake. A new study has documented how the economic burden of TB in the European Union far outweighs the costs of investing in more effective vaccines. Led by the University Hospital Schwarzwick-Holstein in Kiel, Germany, the study has put the economic burden of this lung disease in the EU at around 7 billion US dollars per year. The study is the first of its kind and has been welcomed by many medical experts because very little is known about the costs of TB in the EU at the moment. For more insights on this, here's Roland Deal, Professor for Health Economics in the University Hospital Schwarzwick-Holstein in Kiel, Germany. The important point of the study was that the development of new vaccine costs a lot of money, and the costs are estimated to be 560 till 600 million euro in over a time period of 10 years. And what we did not know was whether this cost would be in an appropriate proportion to the cost of tuberculosis occurring in the European Union. This is the starting point of this. Is it then safe to conclude, Professor, that this study shows us that even in the wealthy European Union, where many people think TB is a disease of the past, the burden of TB on both the economy and on society is huge? One very wise person, Sir William Osler, British medical doctor, gave a very interesting sentence in 1902 
He said that tuberculosis is a social disease with a medical aspect. And we have to face the problem that we have some wealthy countries in the European Union, but we have more and more poor members, comprising now 28 members with a focus on the Eastern Europe. And in these countries, TB, especially multidrug resistant TB, is rising. So we have a new problem, a time bomb, with respect to a very expensive multidrug resistant in Europe. So we had to calculate the cost with respect to the question of whether the costs of developing a new vaccine will be outweighed by the tuberculosis costs with respect to treatment. With the threatening rise of MDR-TB and XDR-TB, not only in Europe but in the whole world, how likely are these costs to increase in the next future? It depends on the budget of the healthcare system. Of course, it's interesting that TB is a huge problem in Africa, China, India, but as you can see by the study, also in Europe. And I think the costs vary between maybe 50 to 100,000 euros per TB case to be treated for multidrug resistant TB worldwide and maybe 150,000 euros until 300,000 euros per treated case for extensively resistant TB. So it's, it's a very large amount. Of course, these costs cannot be compared with the cost of cancer or diabetes mellitus, but they play a role and play a role in dependence of the social situation of people. If you can improve the access to healthcare systems and if you can improve the living conditions, of course, the number of TB and also the number of multidrug-resistant TB cases will decrease. Some experts are of the view that without better vaccines, it is unlikely that TB will ever be eliminated. You also touched base on the importance of developing a new vaccine for TB. But how much will this vaccine cost? Best figure is about 600 million euros over a period of 10 years. So maybe 60 million euros per year. And how hopeful are you that this study will convince more donors to invest in life-saving TB vaccines? I'm quite hopeful because the figures are really impressive, I think. And if you add the monetary equivalence of the last year's loss by disease or by death to the TB, you have not only the treatment costs of 536 million euro per year, but also 5.3 billion per year due to the last year's loss. And if you add these costs, you'll get nearly 6 billion euro per year. And this should be enough to convince the decision makers to invest more in the field of tuberculosis, especially diagnostics, vaccine, and also, of course, new drugs, because you have just two new drugs available in the future, and it's not enough. That's Roland Deal, Professor for Health Economics at the Hospital University Schleswig-Holstein in Kiel, Germany, speaking to Elizabeth Mapari. Now here's Tabisa with your news headlines. The body count in Egypt is rising. At least 36 Islamist prisoners have died in that country on Saturday during an apparent attempt to escape during their transfer to a prison outside Cairo. Meanwhile, former Egyptian President Hosni Mubarak's lawyers say he will be released from jail soon after a prosecutor cleared him in a corruption case. 
And a legal expert in South Africa says the prosecutors in Oscar Pistorius' murder case have received copies of the police investigation docket, which contains sworn statements of every witness they intend to call. Details at 7 Central African time. Thank you, Tabiso. South African Paralympic athlete Oscar Pistorius' murder case has been transferred to the North Gaudeng High Court in Pretoria, commencing on the 3rd of March next year. This was announced today by Magistrate Desmond Naya during a brief appearance of Pistorius in the Pretoria Magistrate's Court. He is charged with the murder of his girlfriend, Riva Siengamp, who was shot dead in his Pretoria home on February the 14th, Tutongobeni reports. Oscar Pistorius has been out on bail since February and has since resumed some low-key training. The double amputee won gold at the London 2012 Paralympic Games and also competed at the 2012 Summer Olympics in London. His arrests in February stunned many South Africans who saw him as a national sporting hero after his long legal battle to be able to take part in the Olympics. State prosecutors are arguing that the killing was premeditated, a charge which carries a sentence of life imprisonment. The prosecution says he killed Stian Gump intentionally after a fight. However, Pistorius denies this, saying he shot his girlfriend through the bathroom door of his home in Pretoria after mistaking her for a burglar. The prosecution handed over details of its case against Pistorius at Monday's hearing, including a witness list and forensic reports. Much will be dependent on ballistic evidence from the bathroom where Stiengamp was shot. According to a report in the Weekly Sunday Times of South Africa, ballistics evidence now backs up Pistorius' claim that he was on his stumps. The paper quoted a person with inside knowledge of the case saying the defense will try to show that his actions were reasonable for a person with a disability. Another report in the local city press newspaper claims that Stian Gump's post-mortem examination report also in the police dossier reveals she was crouching behind the bathroom door when she was shot in the head, hip and arm. The paper cites Hilton Border, the former lead police investigator in the case, as saying that detectives believed forensic examination would back up the theory that Stian Gump was hiding in the bathroom rather than using the toilet. Pistorius's appearance also coincides with Rieve Stian Gump's 30th birthday which the family is said to be commemorating behind closed doors. Reports on Fortune in Africa, I'm Tutongobene in Johannesburg. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's official international public radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja, informing the world about Africa. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Floods are threatening in the northern parts of Cameroon, southern Chad, and east Nigeria as the rivers Logon and Benue let loose their waters. Hundreds of families have been displaced in Cameroon. 
This is happening after a delegation of ministers from Nigeria recently visited Cameroon to see how the neighboring countries could handle the situation. Last year, hundreds of thousands, including 50,000 people in Cameroon, were displaced by the floods. Our correspondent in Cameroon, Mogi Kinzeka, reports. According to local officials in Cameroon's Mayodanai division that shares boundary with the Republic of Chad, over a hundred Cameroonians have been forced to relocate. Some 50 are Chadians who settled on Cameroonian villages where they work as cattle rearers or rice farmers. Here is Kaltaza Paul, one of the victims. Inner Peter lost their houses. For example, me personally, I lost uh, one room. And there are many people who have lost their house. For example, my mother, everything is damaged. Uh, now she, she doesn't know how to do in order for, uh, to try uh, to sustain this situation. Channel Africa also asked Laba Kampete, who is mayor of Giri, where some of the victims have been kept in a local primary school, the magnitude of the problem. Le niveau du lac n'a pas beaucoup baissé parce que l'eau vient de côté de l'Ere. He says the water level in the lake has not reduced yet, and water comes from Chad and the Lagoon, creating the floods. He says they are held between the lake, that is Lake Gere in their region, and the Lagoon River which flows from Chad through Cameroon and empties part of its water in Nigeria. As for the governor of Cameroon's far north region, Augustin Fonka Awa, the government, in an attempt to save the lives of the people when similar floods devastated property last year, gave them financial compensation to relocate. But the people remained there, claiming that the area is the most fertile for the millet they grow. The people had received compensation from government coffers to quit the area because the area is dangerous. They received this money, went away, and after some time, they returned to the same area because the area is very fertile, but the attractiveness goes with the dangers of the area. It is our responsibility to continue assuring that uh, we manage them and we continue to ask them to keep a little bit away from uh, the area or else they face the consequences of what is happening. The government of Cameroon, in another seemingly desperate attempt to save some of the houses that may be swept by the floods, ordered its local material construction company to teach the people to build highly resistant houses. The director general of the company, Ufe Melo Chinje, says they can assist considering that most of the houses destroyed had fragile foundations. In those areas, the main problems we had were because the houses there did not even have foundations. Most of the houses, you know, they just used the, the traditional system of construction where you mold your earth from the floor, from the ground level, and you move up. And uh, of course, when the rain comes, there is nothing to resist, you know, the water. So that was the main problem they had because the few houses that even had solid foundation, you know, did uh, resist. The measure the government has taken is to actually move them to a high land area where the floods could not come. But of course that could be done today, but you ask, I mean, with the population growth, what happens? Do we abandon all those areas completely or do we find out how best we can construct in those areas? And we feel, well, it's a matter of doing both.
For now, if there's areas where it's better for them to build there, it's fine. But if not, what construction systems can we use on these areas? And of course, as I said, is to make sure quite often it's not even to get the total foundation right on the earth. They are the pillars. You know, you could get pillars that go right down and then you deck you could even deck with wood. It doesn't mean it's every decking that you need a very expensive concrete mixture. Before the floods started threatening, the government of Nigeria dispatched Sarah Reng Ochekpe, that country's Minister of Water Resources to Cameroon, to negotiate with Cameroonian authorities to work together in tackling the situation. Last year, similar floods swept through Cameroon, Nigeria and Chad, and hundreds of thousands of people were displaced. Here is what Sarah Reng Ochekpe said during her stay in Cameroon. Special delegation was sent to Nigeria to commiserate with the government and people of Nigeria for us to be able to find common grounds that uh, will be able to address challenges that uh, confront us. But we saw the level of uh, water in the dam and the reservoir and uh, we can see that uh, things are under control. And we are hopeful that uh, the rains will not be as excessive as uh, they were last year. Last year, the United Nations announced that it needed four million United States dollars to attend to the humanitarian needs of people displaced by floods in the Sahel region, including Nigeria, Cameroon, and Chad. They succeeded to raise only half of that amount. Reporting for Channel Africa. This is Moki Kinzuka in Yaoundé. The Angolan government will contribute over $3 million to the Southern African Development Community's annual budget for 2013 and 2014. This comes as SADC decided to endorse Angola's bid for a United Nations Security Council non-permanent seat as well as for the position of Deputy Director for Africa of the International Civil Aviation Organization. Meanwhile, Angola, Botswana, Namibia, South Africa and Zambia are the largest contributors of air means for the Blue Zambezi Air Force exercise that Angola will host from August 22 to August 30. All participating countries have already deployed their forces in the eastern of the country. Our correspondent Phil Nello in Luanda reports. Angolan government has decided to contribute with over $3.87 million for the SADC annual budget for 2013-2014. Angolan Secretary of State for Foreign Affairs, Manuel Augusto, made the announcement after returning from the SADC summit that was held in Lilongwe, Malawi, over the weekend. According to Mr. Manuel Augusto, the fund will be used for the Regional Strategic Indicative Program, which will receive over $2.8 million and for the SADC's efforts in Madagascar, which will receive $1 million. The Angolan diplomat also announced that SADC summit decided to endorse Angolan's bid for a UN Security Council non-permanent seat, as well as for the position of Deputy Director for Africa of the International Civil Aviation Organization. Asimera the summit has endorsed the bid of Angola to become a non-permanent member of the UN Security Council for 2015-2016 period. 
The election for this position will be held in September 2014, but we have launched our campaign. This summit also endorsed the candidature of an Angolan to become the Deputy Director for Africa of the International Civil Aviation Organization. On the other side, Angola has also been praised for achieving the major goals of SADC, but also for its voluntary financial contribution of over $3.8 million for SADC efforts in Madagascar and another contribution to fund the SADC indicative program. There was Mr. Manuel Augusto, Angolan Secretary of State for Foreign Affairs. The Regional Indicative Strategic Development Plan is a comprehensive development and implementation framework guiding the regional integration agenda of the Southern African Development Community, SADC, of a period of 15 years, 2005-2020. It is designed to provide clear strategic direction with respect to SADC programs, projects and activities in line with the SADC common agenda and strategic priorities as enshrined in the SADC Treaty of 1992. The ultimate objective of the plan is to deepen integration in the region with a view to accelerate poverty eradication and the attainment of other economic and non-economic development goals. The Regional Indicative Strategic Development Plan was formulated in March 2001 and was adopted and approved by the ASADC Summit in August 2003. Meanwhile, air forces from the 14 member states of SADC have already deployed their contingent that will take part in the regional exercise Blue Zambezi. Angola, South Africa, Botswana, Namibia are the main contributors of the 26 jets, carriers and helicopters that will be used during the exercise that will take place in the Lunda Sul, Lunda North and the Mushiku provinces in the eastern of Angola. General Higino da Cunha, head of operation of the Angolan Air Forces, says the drill will deliver real humanitarian assistance to the populations of Luau, Kazembu, Lumbalangimbu municipalities and villages. In this exercise, we will have the participation of the SADC member states and the goal is to provide humanitarian assistance to the population because we want to make this a real exercise as in other exercises we have participated, this has been a fictitious component. We have created a fictitious country in the eastern of Angola where we created the fictitious United Republic of Lumosa, which is a combination of the Lunda Sul and Moshiko provinces. We have also uh, created fictitious neighboring countries. The goal is to provide real humanitarian assistance to municipalities and villages of Lunda North and Lunda Sul provinces. For these operations, we will use 26 jets, carriers and helicopters. These airplanes are mainly from South Africa, Botswana, Zambia, Namibia and from other member states of SADC. Da Zambia, da Namibia, 
There was General Eugenio da Cunha, head of operations of the Angolan Air Force, confirming that conditions are set for the start of Blue Zambezi on August 23rd. According to the Angolan Air Force, the objective of the exercise is to assess national air capacities to support regional operations, observe the willing of the member state to adhere to the regional process of consolidating a force to provide humanitarian assistance in the region. Phil Nello, Channel Africa, Angola. Tabe Solihuku is back in studio with your economic news this time. The cost of the nationwide strike in South Africa's auto manufacturing industry could run into trillions within the matter of days. All seven vehicle makers in the country are being affected by NUMSA's wage strike. According to employers' organization NAMSA, there has been no intimidation during pickets at plants in the provinces of the Eastern Cape, KwaZulu-Natal and Gauteng. NAMSA spokesperson Tapelomolapo says that the cost could go beyond the loss of wages and production. We end up with an industry that we are not able to grow because in order to grow our local auto manufacturing industry, we need to be able to deliver to our customers at the right time. Otherwise, they just go and look for these products from elsewhere in the world. South Africa, as you know, is not the only base for automotive manufacturing. In fact, it's probably the smallest base for automotive manufacturing in the world. The National Employers Association of South Africa says despite government promise to create millions of jobs, there hasn't been any major changes as many people are unemployed. Association Chief Executive Officer Jared Pappenfuss says they're embarking on roadshows engaging the community to discuss issues of job creation and how the country can devise a turnaround strategy to tackle its economic crises. Because they are extremely important issues which we will have to deal with. You know, we can't, as in the past, only negotiate increased wages. This industry we need to become more competitive and we need to create work. So the unions will have to adopt an approach which is that we, if, we, if they go into, in the, into industrial action, this action will have to be disciplined. The withholding of work is a constitutional right, but the violent strike action is illegal and unconstitutional and seriously harming the economy. South Africa's Financial Services Board says the high cost of compliance is creating problems for many emerging companies in the financial industry. FSB's Executive Officer Dubet Sidi says that the regulatory body is concerned about the high failure rate of small companies entering the sector. The financial industry is among the highly regulated in the country. Sidi says that the FSB is looking at different compliance requirements based on the size of a company as a way of addressing the problem. That creates problems because uh, the systems may be too heavy for this starting financial services provider. We're going to have to say who is who in this area of financial service providers and try to customize the regulations. Kenya's central bank says its usable foreign exchange reserves dipped last week to 5.717 billion US dollars, the equivalent of 4.9 months of import cover. The reserves stood at 5.741 billion, equivalent to 4.10 months of import cover the previous week. Kenya's import cover is required to be a minimum of four months.
The US dollar trades at 10.15 South African Rand, 8.75 Botswana Pulas, 5.65 Zambian Guachas. It's a trading at 0.65 to the British pound, at 0.76 to the euro. Gold, $1,374, a platinum $1,511 an ounce. Brand to crude oil, $112, 15 cents a barrel. Economics update. Samek Duza is in the studio now and he has your sports news. Thanks on the a quick look in your sports. A number of officials from Somalia's National Olympic Committee, the NOC, have visited the construction site of the organization's future headquarters in Mogadishu. NOC Secretary General Duran Ahmed Farah says that since the foundation of Somali National Olympic Committee half a century ago, they used to rent compounds, but this will be the first Somali NOC-owned center. Farah says that they are very grateful to the International Olympic Committee, the Olympic Solidarity and Somalia's civil Service Development Ministry for helping to implement this historic compound. Farah said that the first stage of the construction will be completed on the 28th of this month, after which the second stage will begin. Athletics Kenya has congratulated their athletes who participated at the just-concluded IWAF World Championships in Moscow and Russia. Kenya bagged a total of 12 medals, 5 gold, 4 silver and 3 bronze, which is 5 less than the Degu Hall in 2011. The athletes will return home this evening knowing that the Federation has no reservations about their performance at the Global Showpiece. Athletics Kenya Vice President David Okeo says that they are happy with what the athletes have achieved in Moscow. As the vice president and also in charge of the competitions, I'm very happy with our performance in Moscow. 10,000 meters men, uh, we got, got a bronze medal, which I'm also happy with. Uh, our, our athletes did the best, and at least uh, somebody had to win a gold medal. We did get it. All the same, we are in the medal bracket, and I think that's good performance. Uh, in terms of the number of medals that we brought back home, well, yeah, yeah, it, it, it does not uh, it, it equal and now in soccer, Zimbabwe left with a mountain to climb in their quest to qualify for the 2014 African Nations Championship 10 after they were held to a goalless draw by Zambia in the first leg first round qualifier at the Rufaro Stadium yesterday. The second leg takes place at the Levu Monawasa Stadium in Dola on the 24th of this month. While coach Ian Goroa remained optimistic, Chipolopolo coach Havrena is confident that his men will progress to the finals to be hosted by South Africa next January. And swimming, South Africa's Shal Bowers claimed his third medal and broke a new African record in the penultimate day of the IPC Swimming World Championships in Montreal in Canada last night. 
Bauer won the bronze medal in the S13 100-meter breakstroke race, breaking his own 2011 African record by 0.50 seconds, clocking in at 59.52 seconds. Bauer has another chance to win a medal on the final day of the championships as he will be in action in the S3 100-meter freestyle tonight. Swimming South Africa's marketing and communications manager, Godfrey Monet, has more details. So far, I think our swimmers, I must say that they are really making us proud as the country swimming South Africa. Seven medals that they've already won so far, although we did have a target of six. So it was good to see that they went over that budget, uh, that target that we expected. Gold medal, so far, if you look at the, uh, the total standing of the medals, got one gold, two silver, and four points, and four African records that have been broken by our uh, swimmers in Canada. So today we'll see Charles Bauer. He'll be competing again uh, tonight, and also uh, Charlize Wright and Craig Hunneval. Uh, so we are expecting to see the good performance again today, but I must say that we are very impressed and happy with the performance uh, of the swimmers at IPC Swimming World Championship. And now in boxing, South African Minister of Sports and Recreation, Figile Mbalula, has assured the boxing community that he has not deserted them and will appoint a new Boxing South Africa chairperson very soon. This follows the sudden resignation of BSA chairperson on the for two weeks ago, plunging the troubled organization into further disarray. Mbalula says that as early as this week, he will be getting to the bottom of this matter. No, we are on track. We should be in a position in the next coming week to make proper announcements. I know that the, the chair has resigned. I've accepted his resignation without any delay. But all other things are just rumors. We are going to the national boxing in Daba. We are ready for that. We are going to engage and consolidate different positions with regard to boxing, unite the promoters, ensure that sponsorship issues are ironed out, and that is going to be through a process of dialogue and resolution at the national boxing in Daba. We are very much on track with regard to that. And finally with tennis, Spain's Rafael Nadal will head to the U.S. Open as World number 2 after winning the ATP Masters in Cincinnati. This after beating John Isner 76-76 and it's his second straight Masters Series title after his win last week in Montreal. Nadal says that it's a great feeling going to New York with two victories. It's a nice feeling to arrive to the U.S. Open with uh, two victories uh, in two very difficult tournaments. And it's, it's nice to arrive there knowing that if I am able to keep continuing, keep playing like this, hopefully I have the chance to, to have a good result. And that's the end of our sport. Stay tuned to Channel Africa and back to Spumelele Zondi. This is Africa Digest. Our top stories on Africa Digest this hour. Chaos in Zimbabwean courts as an election challenge goes ahead despite withdrawal by the MDC. South African athletes formally charged with murder. In economics, production at Toyota South Africa grinds to a halt as nationwide strike gets underway. And in sports, headquarters of Somali National Olympic Committee under construction. And the rest wraps up Africa Digest today for myself, Pumalele Zondi. 
uh, producer Luanda Maome and the rest of the Africa Digest team. Thank you for listening for comments on the show. Send us an email. It's info at channelafrica.org. That's info at channelafrica.org. Or send us an SMS to plus two seven eight two three three two five nine zero five plus two seven eight two three three two five nine zero five. Taking us to the top of the hour is Mama by Max Bushoke. Mama, 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 mama,